The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, a show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. There are so many ways to be intelligent, but a lot of careers, they reward one type of intelligence above all others, fluid intelligence. I'm going to call it being quick. Your fluid intelligence is your cognitive horsepower, your creative capacity to analyze things quickly and come to solutions, to come up with new ideas that nobody's ever thought of before. That's Arthur Brooks. He's a social scientist, and he spent the last decade running a conservative think tank, the American Enterprise Institute. New ideas have been his trade for a very long time, which is honestly kind of a problem for him. You see, Arthur also believes that our fluid intelligence begins to decline in our 30s and 40s, as in my age. We can work harder and harder, but our new ideas just won't seem as sharp. Arthur is 55. And so last summer, he decided it was time to change careers. Because while our fluid intelligence may decline, Arthur says we tend to develop something else in the middle decades of our lives crystallized intelligence. I'm going to call it being wise. And that's increasing in your 40s and 50s. And it stays high in your 60s and 70s. And you've still got your marbles even in your 80s and beyond. And that's not your ability to recall facts quickly or invent new things. It's your ability to take ideas that you've learned and to synthesize them in ways that people can understand and that can be incredibly useful. I don't know about you, but I'm not afraid of changing what I do over the course of my life. I've already done it a few times. I plan to do it some more. I just want to be growing. I want to be making the best use of my gifts and skills to feel like whatever I'm doing, I'm getting better at it every day. And that's why I invited Arthur on the show. I wanted to hear how he puts these ideas into practice in his own life. Here's Arthur. So, Arthur, you introduced this idea that was very new for me when I read it, this idea of professional decline. (laughs) (laughs) It's, but it's not, it's not foreign to you at all. Everybody thinks about it. It's just that we don't know very much about it. It's sort of obscured. It's enshrouded in the mists of the things that we don't want to think about. Right. And, but what we all know, it's coming, right? And, and the, the thing that I noticed by the time I was, you know, I'm a 55-year-old man, and, and my friends are more or less my age, and they're freaking out. They're highly accomplished people, and they're starting to notice. I mean, they're not losing their marbles. They're 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 in their prime, but they notice that certain skills just aren't what they once were, and they can't they can't understand themselves in the absence of their skills. Well, it's a weird thing about the workforce, or at least the workforces I was trained to come into. Right? It was linear. It was a ladder. You climbed up to the top rung, and I suppose the top rung was right before you retired, and so it was your oldest moment in the workforce. Right. But what you're saying is actually that's not the way that work works, or at least that a career works. That's that's correct. So the, even CEOs, what they'll find is that they had they're not they're not in the zone of their maximum performance, and and it's it's real hard for them. Somebody once told me early in my career that when you're chief executive or when you're any management responsibility that's of significant, you know, prestige, that you have only two choices. You can leave before you're ready or you can leave on somebody else's terms. And I'm like, that's a terrible choice. But there really is only one choice under those circumstances, unless you're willing to hang around until you get the shove. because. You're the, basically the last one acknowledging the fact that you're not as good at your job as you used to be. 
And so you want to leave before you're ready. And that had a big impact on me, but it made me want to understand this notion of this cadence of people's abilities. Is it, is it, you know, in all industries? Is it in some? When does it happen? How do you deal with it? How do people fight against it? What could they do to be happier when it actually happens? And, Which is key. And that's why I'm writing about this. Well, so you wrote this Atlantic article yeah. uh, on the occasion of your decision to step down from your role at the American Enterprise Institute. Yeah. And it happened earlier than many of us would have predicted or guessed that it would happen. Mm. And you gave this idea of professional decline as one of the reasons. And so I want to start with your story. Yeah. Like, you know, how's, how has your career worked? My career has been all over the place. Like a lot of people were listening to us. One of the greatest things about this country is this constant process of entrepreneurial reinvention. So even people who don't think of themselves as entrepreneurs, they are. And the, the, the truth of the matter is if you're going to be fully alive, your life is your enterprise. Maybe you start a business. Maybe you don't. Who cares? That's the most boring part of enterprise is your business. The most interesting part of enterprise is you, is right. your life. And so if you're in the process of startup and reinvention and entrepreneur life entrepreneurship, then, then you have to be quite serious about reinventing yourself when it's appropriate. So I started off my life as a, as a classical French horn player. I was a classical musician, you know, bombed out of college at 19, um, all the way through my 20s. I was playing chamber music and I, I played a couple of years of jazz with a, a guitar player named Charlie Bird on the road. And then I wound up in the Barcelona Symphony. I know of Charlie yeah, Bird. The great, he was a great bossa nova king. You know, he brought jazz samba to the United States in the late 50s with Stan Getz. So early Arthur was a dedicated professional yeah. musician. How old were you when you started French horn? Uh, when I started the French horn, I was nine. Um, and when I was 19, I went pro. And I did that for 12 years full-time until I was 31. At 19, how long did you think that you would be pro? The rest of my life until the day I died. I love music. And I, I mean, when I was 19 years old, I cared about one thing, which was music. I thought about it all day. I mean, I had the greatest French horn players in the world. Their pictures literally on my bedroom wall growing up. Wow. I, all I wanted was to be – literally, I wanted to be the greatest French horn player in the world. And there was a, a few moments occasionally where I thought – it might happen. Well, looking back, what was the seminal performance for you? <laughs> the seminal performance was an unhappy one, actually. Um, I noticed when I was 22 years old that I was going into decline as a French horn player. 22? 22, yeah. And, you know, it's weird because athletes will sometimes say this. You know, they'll have, you know, pitchers will have their best year when they're 19 or 20 years old, and then they go into decline. And it's hard to predict why this happens. It also happens in classical music sometimes because it's such a, a high level of technical domination with fine motor skills that it's hard to know exactly why everything works the way that it does, but you practice constantly. And when I was 22, I recognized I was not as good as I had been when I was 21 or 20 or 19 or 18. And so I went to the best teachers in the world to the extent that I could afford to do so. I was making hardly a living. And I practiced more, and I, and I set I set this goal for myself. Um, I was going to. I had. It turns out later in, in the year when I was twenty two, I had my Carnegie Hall debut coming up. Wow! In here in New York, what were you going to play? Uh, I was playing chamber music at, at with with the Annapolis Brass Quintet, which is the quintet that I was touring with in those days, and we were having our, our Carnegie Hall debut. Huge opportunity, and I had set it as my goal. My Carnegie Hall debut is going to be my renaissance. It's going to be when I turn this thing around and I'm going to start climbing back up the hill again. And <laughs> I practiced for it, but more than anything else, I wanted that to be just a psychological watershed. So I got there and I remember the night distinctly. And it was, and it was beautiful. I played so well in the first half of the concert and I thought, <laughs> I, I did it. I did it. This really is 
it's, it's like the old days. And the second half of the concert, um, we were taking turns explaining to the audience the piece of chamber music we're about to play next, and it was my turn. I was a very nervous public speaker. Now it's what I do for a living, but I was a very nervous public speaker, and my hands would shake. And, and I got up to, to, to talk to the audience, and I walked to the edge of the stage, and I wasn't watching my feet, and I stepped too close to the edge, and I fell into the audience. Oh, wow. I fell off the stage <laughs> at my Carnegie Hall debut. <laughs> and I, I, was, I was living in New York at the time, and I, and I was going home on the subway. And um, How did your horn survive? Badly. It was badly damaged. Carnegie Hall paid to have it repaired. But, you know, that what it actually did to my self-image, it was u- hugely useful because I thought, you know, this has got to be a message from God. <laughs> you know, that it was a metaphor for what was happening to my career and, and I recognized that, I mean, I didn't recognize, I, I still fought against it. The truth is I raged against the fact that I was in decline for a lot longer. Um, I raged against it until I was 31 years old when I finally quit. And um, at the time, I had, had gotten a, a bachelor's degree by correspondence, not telling anybody. I well, was so I was going to say, you may have raged against it, but at some point in your 20s, you also put it together that you really should finish that college degree. I hedged. That, that something was yeah, going to yeah. be ahead. I hedged so, a little bit, but I never told anybody. Only I was, I, I got married relatively young. And the only person who knew I was studying at night by correspondence was my wife, because I was too embarrassed to have any other musician know. Because that would show a lack of commitment to the business, and and then I and then I secretly got a master's degree at night too in economics, and then when I was thirty one, I said, "Look, uh, uh, I'm not going to turn it around. I'm just not going to turn it around." So I had raged against it for you know nine years or something, and and I hung it up and and went and got my PhD and became a college professor. So that was your first, I guess, experience of decline. looking at professional decline. And mm-hmm. in many ways, it's a gift to have something like that happen to you yeah. in your youth, or it can be perceived as one. Mm-hmm. In addition to having had the amazing music experience, you perhaps learned something that could serve you later. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I had the, well, <laughs> to begin with, it's not that I learned something that was I felt so wonderful and valuable. On the contrary, you know, when I left music, I never talked about it, not for years. I mean, people knew I had been a musician, but I never talked about the fact that I failed. I mean, right now, talking about it bugs me. It still you. hurts. It still hurts me to think about it because, you know, I, I loved music. All I wanted to do was to be, I mean, is that too much to ask, the greatest French horn player in the world? <laughs> and, but it was, it was really painful. And so the resolution I made to myself was never again, never again. The next thing I do, it's not going to happen to me again. I'm going to figure out the bones of a career that can go on and on and on. But that's ridiculous. You can't go on and on and on. Look, you're going to die, among other things. But but also you have to have a life. And part of a life is a cadencing of your abilities. That to, to decline in certain abilities is to be able to understand your career from a different context. To, to deny one part of your life is not to be fully alive. It's a big mistake. Well, and so I had to – basically I had to free myself from those shackles. So the research project was, well, in that article, you talked about getting on a plane and uh, overhearing a conversation. Yeah. And you said that you you knew of the person who was speaking and that you would have considered that person remarkably successful. Yeah. Um, but that person was confessing private doubt and depression. Yeah. And that, as I remember, perhaps spurred your research? Yeah. So... I remember when I was, I guess I was 51 years old and it was four years ago. And my 
my professional life couldn't have been going better. I had finally attained, as an academic, what I had hoped to do as an economist. I mean, I had a book on the bestseller list, which is sort of the Shangri-La for you know nonfiction people. I realize it's dumb, but and you know, I was the president of the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington D.C. And things were going really, really well for me professionally. But I was kind of thinking, how long can I keep that up? I mean, I, it's not like I'm going to write a string of bestsellers till I'm a hundred. It's, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And and furthermore, I had data that showed that that people have a tendency after 10 years as a CEO, they did go into decline, not because they're in, they're in cognitive decline, but because they, they get tired of doing the things that they don't want to do but need to do to be successful. And so that was the moment when I was on this plane and I heard this guy behind me, this elderly gentleman, talking to somebody who I assumed to be his wife. And I couldn't quite make out what he was saying, sort of mumbling. But but she kept saying things like, oh, don't say it would be better if you were dead. <laughs> Holy mackerel. And so I'm a social scientist now. So I started getting into my mind this portrait of the guy. This has got to be a, you know somebody really disappointed in his life. You know, the companies he didn't start, the education he didn't pursue, the promotions he never got. And the lights go on. It was at night. And the lights go on and everybody stands up. And I look and it's one of the most famous men in America, somebody who was super famous for stuff that happened decades ago and not controversial at all. I mean, not not superficial. I mean, really, really great and heroic acts. And somebody who's been a hero to m- many, many Americans, including me. And and he had just been confessing that he felt useless and, and that nobody loved him anymore. Nobody returned his calls. Nobody cared about him anymore. And we're leaving the airplane and the, the pilots saying, you know, thanks for flying United, folks, like that was talk. And, uh, and he looks at the guy behind me and he says, oh, sir, you've been my hero since I was a little boy. Well, listen, I listened to that story, Arthur, and I, it, you know, it makes me cringe a little bit because sometimes the things for which we are judged successful outwardly don't make us feel full inwardly. And the larger the outward success is, the more challenging it becomes to feel successful internally. Right. right? And mm-hmm. and. So if you, like you, for example, at 51 years old, have a book on the bestseller list, in some ways, that's a recipe for unhappiness. That's a recipe for a window of struggle where you have to contend with the fact that maybe you don't feel like you're as good as that person nine months ago who got all of that Hmm. attention. And I wonder if that has to do with your career path or if that just has to do with the sort of progress of what it means to be humanity. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, it's it's all Sisyphean, right? You know, it's Mm. like they're trying to push the boulder up the hill and, you know, never quite get to the top, run over you over and over again. Right. Well, the, the answer, I think, that has to do with the way that you understand your own career successes. So and just, so just a, a two seconds of basic philosophy. In, in 1265, Thomas Aquinas writes the Summa Theologica, which is this, you know, it basically is a, all of the intellectual content that we understand for the Roman Catholic Church comes from this, right? All this philosophy from this. And the most interesting thing bearing on this conversation from the Summa Theologica is that, that Thomas said that there were four substitutes for God. So no, everybody listening, don't turn it off if you're not religious. That's not my point. You know, He said basically there are four idols that we chase that won't give us satisfaction, but that we chase them nonetheless. And, and modern evolutionary psychology shows that the reason is because we think these things will help us pass on our genes, but they won't make us happier. What are they? Money? power, pleasure, and fame. Those are the big four, the four horsemen of ambition, right? Right. You will pass on your genes or you'll find a little bit of divinity in them, depending on your point of view, whether it's secular or religious. But the bottom line is that there's a ton of research that shows that you can be, you can be happy in spite of these things, but never because of these things. 
money, power, pleasure, and fame. If these are the things that you're chasing centrally in your life, you're going you're gonna to struggle. On the other hand, the things that do bring enduring happiness, you know, the transcendent faith in the vernacular, family, friendship, and earned success through your work, that, that, those are the things that truly do bring enduring happiness to people. And, you know, the tomes have been written, including some by me, uh, on this subject. So the work is my point. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're thinking about your best-selling book in terms of fame and power, woe be unto you. But if you're thinking about it in terms of earning your success and helping tons of people and touching them and getting satisfaction from that, it's good. All right. We're taking a quick pause here. Coming up after the break... Arthur elaborates on what makes a successful career. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. This week, I'm talking to Arthur Brooks about how to time your career moves. Well, so how do you map that formula for, we can call it happiness, we can call it also just fulfillment onto a career? So the way to think about a career is, number one, to begin with the truth, which is that work is a sanctified thing. Work is an inherent source of satisfaction for the big, overwhelming majority of people. 89% of Americans either like or love their jobs. And it doesn't depend on whether you make more or less money. It doesn't depend on whether you went to college. It doesn't, in, in a very large extent, it doesn't even depend on the sector that you're in. But it has to have two characteristics for you to love your job. Number one, you have to serve others. And number two, you have to feel a sense of accomplishment. Earn success and serving others. That's what you have to look for in your job. Don't look for fame. Don't look for power. Don't even look for great riches beyond the ability to support yourself. Because those things are transient and they're, they're, they're idolatrous. They will lead you to iniquity. They'll lead you to unhappiness. What you need to look for is something where you are working at the edge of your abilities and in so doing, you're earning your success and you're serving other people. I feel like this is a little uh, primer for me personally, and yeah. I'm really appreciating it, Arthur. No, absolutely. So in light of that, what took you to the place where you decided actually it was time for you to step away? So when I, when I looked at the data on chief executives, and I was president of AEI, which is a, which a hard job. 
I mean, in the, the the president of a think tank in Washington D.C. and I mean, it's it's at the it's a po- policy think tank that that you know in ideological wars it can be it's really stressful because you know D.C. is brutal, and yeah. you know you, the, the, you know you can tell your friends because they're the ones who stab you in the chest. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's <laughs> as t- opposed to the back. It's tough. And so one of the things that I had noticed in my industry, but many industries, is that you don't get much more than 10 years before there's a great attenuation of your effectiveness. Again, why? I mean, you could be 55 or 65 or 75, but after about 10 years, you find people just are, they're tired of doing what they have to do to be successful. And a lot of that they don't like very much. I thought, like, I don't want to be a casualty. I don't want to be 20 years in. I mean, they'll, they'll, it's not like they're going to take my job away. On the contrary, you know, when I was five years into the job, they seen my board said, I would, would like you to make a commitment and at least an unspoken commitment to stay for 15 or 20 years. I mean, they had a lot of confidence. Thank God it was great. But I had done the research and I said, I'm not going to stay for more than 10. They'll say, ah, you know, that old joke, it's an old Catskills joke. My wife says I'm consumed by thoughts of revenge, but I just say, we'll see about that. (laughs) So I said, I'm not going to stay for more than five years. My board said, yeah, we'll see about that. We'll just see about that. Yes, I see what you're saying about exhaustion, but you also referenced another idea, and that is that we tend to accomplish our best intelligence-driven work in our, what, third and fourth decade? Yeah. And you were passing out of that decade and yeah. into the next. And that maybe it would be valuable to think about the kinds of contributions that bring the most satisfaction in your fifth, sixth, seventh decade. And I wonder right. if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. So the way to think about that is, and there was a lot of, you know, sort of decade, third, fourth, fifth, sixth decade. Here's basically the dynamics of that. Right. W- what makes you successful, when I say you, I mean everybody listening to us, making you guys successful is your fluid intelligence. If you're in your 20s and 30s, your fluid intelligence is your cognitive horsepower, your creative capacity to analyze things quickly and come to solutions, to come up with new ideas that nobody's ever thought of before. That's why all the idea people on LinkedIn, that's why they're doing well is because of their fluid intelligence. That doesn't mean you have the super high IQ or a low IQ, but fluid intelligence is your ability to do your job quick, well, and accurately. Right. The problem with that is that fluid intelligence declines in your 30s and 40s. It just does. There's a work by the British social psychologist Raymond Cattell did fundamental work on this. But here's the good news. See, see, the problem is that people say, I'm in decline. I'm like, because if you try to push it, you can still be really accomplished. But by your 50s and 60s, your fluid intelligence is low enough that you're going to see this attenuation of your abilities. And so careers that require fluid intelligence in abundance and nothing else, like air traffic controllers, you see, they get too slow. So that's the reason that the – you know what the re- mandatory retirement age for a- air traffic controllers is? I have no idea. 56. And the reason is because they found that you just can't perform. They find that, that uh, baseball umpires are – they get dramatically worse as they go through their 50s and 60s. They're just way better in their – 30s and 40s. Now, unfortunately, it's hard to make your way up through the ranks until you're pretty much in decline in, right. in industries like this. But here's the good news. Fluid intelligence is only one kind of intelligence. There's also crystallized intelligence. It's a different curve. And that's increasing in your 40s and 50s. And it stays high in your 60s and 70s. And if you still got your marbles, even in your 80s and beyond. And that's not your ability to recall facts quickly or invent new things. It's your ability to take ideas that you've learned and to synthesize them in ways that people can understand and that can be incredibly useful. In other words, you go from being a fact person, to a, a, you go from being a discoverer, a, a, a pioneer, an inventor, to being a wise man, to being a, a, somebody who's got a vast library 
to having wisdom. That's a different set of skills. That's the reason that poets who are high on, on, on fluid intelligence, they tend to peak out. They do uh, half their work by the age of 40. Historians, who it's crystallized intelligence, all the stuff you know and putting it together, they do half their work after the age of 65. So you start off being a poet, finish up being a historian, and you got to put your career that way. Or think about it as you start off as an inventor and you finish up as an instructor. And all the greatest careers have that particular cadence. But if you don't jump on that second curve, you're going to be frustrated. And by jumping on the second curve, in your case, you chose to step into a university role. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I, I left AEI, which was real high in fluid intelligence, and, and I took a professorship at Harvard, which is phenomenal. I mean, it's a great university. And I'm just, I just love it. I'm enjoying it so much. And, does, and I knew it a place to the strengths. Does it feel to you right now like your day job is substantively very different, has a different cadence than your day job did earlier? It, it does. And actually, the truth is I'm, I'm struggling because it's new. And and I used to be a college professor. So for a long time, I taught at Syracuse, at a very good, you know, the Maxwell School of Public Affairs, a top public affairs school. But I was out of that for 11 years. So I'm remembering what it means to be a college professor and... and uh, the, that cadence is really tricky, you know, the things that I'm not used to. So, for example, when, you're, when I'm president of a company, um, the communication is really parsimonious. You know, I don't get emails that are more than a few words and they're coming at you real quick and you have people who are managing your schedule. And now I'm managing myself, basically. And in academia, everybody writes like 10 paragraph emails. <laughs> and they bury the lead. So you got to read 10 paragraphs to figure out what people are talking to. It's a very different culture, I have to say. It's tough. And I'm, you know, I'm back in the classroom and I'm trying to get those skills going again. But I have to say that I find that I think that I have the potential over the next year to be a much better professor than I ever was in my 30s and 40s. Um, because I see, I just know a lot more. That's I, interesting. Know, yeah, and I was teaching economics back in the old days, and I'm teaching leadership now, which is a highly synthetic thing. You know, I'm talking about, you know, case studies and biography, but also the leading edge research on what, what good leaders do. And, you know, being a professor of leadership at Harvard is a wonderful opportunity. I'm teaching a class at Harvard Business School in the spring called Leadership and Happiness. You know, how leaders can manage their own happiness and how they can manage the happiness of the people that they lead. And I'm super excited about it. Right. Well, hey, listen, Arthur, you were in your last position for 10 years. Yeah. You've just made a case for why it might be important to move on after mm -hmm. that period. Yeah. You're 55. Yeah. 10 years, you'll be 65. Mm -hmm. with, with, you know, with luck. With a good deal of luck. We're hoping. We are, we're <laughs> we are hoping and planning. We have bad genes in my family. We have, we have <laughs> longevity's not very good. Don't worry. So. In, in 10 years, CRISPR will solve that for us. Um, <laughs> I don't smoke and drink. I don't eat meat and I go to the gym every day. So. <laughs> are you vegan? I mostly am vegan. I'm certainly vegetarian. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, what's next? So I, I am. I'm going to do the best job I possibly can at Harvard, which I'm enjoying a great deal. I'm writing a book based on the things that we're talking about right now, um, and that's based on this this Atlantic article that I wrote last July uh, about decline. But it's going to be a hopeful book. It's called The Winner's Curse. But it's a hopeful book talking about the fact that people who do a lot, they tend to perceive their decline, but they can turn it into a source of transcendence and, you know, real victory. Um, I'm going to work on that. I'm working on a, you know, a podcast and a television show. And I have a new, I have a new uh, documentary on Netflix called The Pursuit, which is a really, really fun project. And I want to do creative work. I think I'm in the most creative zone of my life, and that's what I plan to do. Um, one place or another um, for as many years as I get. 
That's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, Arthur. Thank you. Thanks to all of our listeners. I appreciate what you're doing. That was Arthur Brooks. When he's not writing, he teaches leadership at Harvard's Kennedy School. I still can't believe that story Arthur told about his debut at Carnegie Hall. It must have felt terrible at the time. But that moment became a pivot point for his career, and that got me wondering, do you have stories about moments that changed your career trajectory? A moment where everything shifted? If so, drop us a line at hellomonday at linkedin.com or post on LinkedIn using the hashtag hellomonday. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find the show. And join me next week for a special episode about an entire field that didn't used to even exist. My guest is a pro gamer, Andy Din. He used to be a League of Legends champion. Now he runs his own team. Think Boston Red Sox, but for e-gaming. It's kind of like a phenomenon. It happened within a really short period. So it was crazy to hear um, a whole entire stadium chant our team, and it's the ground would be shaking. So I, I, I was kind of appalled. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Laura Sim. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Maya Mangini makes the trains run. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. We had additional help for this episode from Victoria Taylor. Dave Pond is our technical director. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And you also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday, and thanks for listening. I just want to ask, what kind of horn did you play? I played a Lawson, handmade horn, mm. made by Walter Lawson. Mm. Yeah. What material? It was a, it was brass. Um, it wasn't a nickel horn. Yeah. It was a brass horn. Yeah. Um, but he was one of the the only handmade horn players that was still lacquering his horns. Wow. Yeah. How did you get to horn at age nine? I mean, I know how I got to horn. I got to horn because in the fifth grade when I brought home the clarinet, my dad said, Pick up the horn, kid. You'll get into college. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I picked up the horn because I was actually goofing around one day and I was playing some tune on the garden hose. And my uncle, who had been a brass player, said, oh, you'd be a great French horn player. And there it's – I mean, people make the most ridiculous choices on the basis of arbitrary considerations. My brother's a bass player, but string bass. Which is – and so – and it was because it was the biggest one. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it was, but I have to say, it was great. It was full of happiness uh, for me, and I still love music, and um, it still bugs me that I didn't make it.